Life is a gift. We talked about that last week. And as we enjoy the gift of life, it's Palm Sunday. We need to get our branches out. We need to lay them down and rejoice in this life. Remember the beauty and wonders of this life and also remove the things that are holding us back from truly celebrating Jesus this Palm Sunday. Today we conclude our sermon series, Vanity, Vanity, It's All Vanity, and we start at chapter 11 at the end. So open up your Bibles to chapter 11, verse 7. Let's read, and then we'll pray and ask God to work and move within us. Here's what it says, and it's talking about the advice for the, for the young and the old, and so that's really the close of this, young and old, that's a big theme. It says this, life is sweet. How pleasant to see a new day dawning. Our life is sweet. A new day is dawning. We are to live this life one day at a time. Here's what it says. But um, when people live to be a very old, let them rejoice in every day of life. We are going to live for a certain time period, maybe an older day. And we are to rejoice. Deuteronomy 33, 25 says this. May your strength match your days. May your strength grow as you get older in life. And may you live your life one day at a time. That's what Ecclesiastes is talking about. It says, but then let them also remember that there will be many dark days. Still everything comes is meaningless. There's going to be dark days ahead. No matter how great your day is today, life as we grow older will bring dark days into our life. Verse 9 says, young people, it's wonderful to be young. It is. Until you're not. It says, enjoy every minute. Do everything you want to do. Take it all in. When you're young, do the most and the best. Live your life and take it all in. But here's the warning. But remember that you must give account to God for everything you do. When you live your life for the glory of God and the words of God become part of who you are, you got to make sure that you realize you're going to have to give account to God no matter what you do in your life, good or bad. Here's the last verse. It says, but remember that youth with the whole life before you is meaningless. Life is a gift. It's Palm Sunday. We're a week away from Easter and we need to enjoy it. We need to uh, remember the beautiful things that God has done. And we also need to remove the impediments or the things that are holding us back in that beautiful relationship. As we get ready to go into chapter 12, let's pray. Father, we love you and we praise you. And we ask that you will take these beautiful words, these uh, amazing poetic words out of Ecclesiastes, and they, they will grow us, that you will allow them to teach us and to renew us, to show us what's right and wrong. Holy Spirit, I ask that you edify a specific word to all that is watching this. We thank you for your love, Lord, and we thank you for your mercy. Holy Spirit, do your thing. We pray that you will bring salvation. We pray that there will be many that receive a revelation. And Lord, I ask that there will be wonderful transformation uh, transformation because of who you are. We love you and we praise you in the name above all names, Jesus Christ. So we're talking about Palm Sunday, life being a gift. 
But really, if you're honest with yourself, life is a school. There's a bunch of lessons and a bunch of tests. And if it's a school, then it's something that we need to manage or steward. That's what we're talking about today. Remember, it's Palm Sunday. We take out our palm branches and we celebrate Hosanna in the highest. Matthew, uh, right before this story in, in Matthew 25, Jesus comes in and everybody's claiming Jesus as Lord, uh, Hosanna in the highest because they think they have a new king. They do, but it's a different type of king. In Matthew 25, uh, Matthew, the author, is writing to the Jewish people that Jesus, or the Messiah, is the king of the Jews. And that's something to be admired. And in Matthew 25, to me, some of the scariest text in all of the Bible talks about uh, the parable of the ten brides and the parable of the talents, and then this final judgment that we need to be prepared for. But here's Matthew 25, and I just want to tell you how it begins. It's one of the parables that talk about life and afterlife. It says this, verse 14. Again, the kingdom of heaven can be illustrated by a story of a man going on a long trip. That story or that man, the story is the good news, and that man is Jesus Christ. He called his servants together and entrusted his money to them while he was gone. We, or those that believe, are the servants. And here's what he says. He gave five bags of silver or talents to one, two bags of silver or talents to the other, and one bag of silver or talents to the last. And here's the interesting words. It says, dividing it in the proportion to their abilities. And then he left this trip. So Jesus left, went to be with the father, but he's coming back. And he left each and every one of us who call ourselves believers, these talents or these bags of money. Now, if you've studied this story before, these talents are worth uh, about 6,000 denarii, which one denarii would be a normal day's wage. So if you bring it into the 21st century in 2021, this would be worth about $1.4, $1.5 million, this bag of, of, of talents right here. Now, today, a million dollars isn't that much because we have billionaires and we have trillions of dollars in debts. We're into the billions. So millions, everybody's a millionaire nowadays. But listen to this. The average U.S. worker over a lifetime making $45,000 a year actually is going to earn $1.7 million over a lifetime. And the reason why that's important in this story is Jesus is giving the workers enough of a lifetime divided up to their proportion of how they live their life. He's giving them bags of talent. And he's saying life is a gift. He's saying life is about a schooling and we need to prepare because there is another part of life that we need to prepare for. And I believe that story really blends well with Ecclesiastes 12 as we conclude this sermon series and as we march through these last few words of this book. This book has been crazy. There's been some really funny words and some crazy analogies, and there's been some many pretty dark areas. If you've read this uh, from the beginning, all the words in the 12 chapters, you would see and understand what I'm saying. So here's what verse, our chapter 12, verse 1 says. Don't let the excitement of of your youth cause you to forget your creator. This is the first time in all 12 chapters that he uses this word creator, which uh, means God. 
Honor him in your youth before you grow old and say life isn't pleasant anymore. At some point in your life, as you get older, life is no longer as pleasant as it used to be. My father-in-law's 88. My dad's going to be 80 soon. My mom's getting up there. We're just, we're all getting older and it's not as easy to go from the couch to the bathroom or the bedroom or to get some food. Life gets harder as you get older. And what, what we see as Solomon is trying to teach this through this author, he says, get your act together now, sooner, better than later. Solomon has left the Lord for many years. He's kind of wandered off. And now he brings us to the final conclusion of his report. He's writing this final essay, his doctrinal report about life under the sun, a life where he thought about no God but himself. And he's wasted all this time and all these years. He's older and wiser and he's coming to the end of his life. And he's saying, what I did the last 10 or 15 or 20 years, that's no way to live. We all have an appointment coming. Remember last week we talked about death is not an accident. It's an appointment. We all have an appointment coming. Jesus is coming back and we all are going to be held accountable. And death is certain. So we need to make sure that as as life is a school that we are stewarding it and preparing for it. Here's what verse 2 says. Remember him in the light of the sun, moon and stars is dim in your old eyes. Remember him, sorry, before the light of the sun, moon, and stars dim in your old eyes and the rain clouds continue to darken him. Remember him as your senses start to become numb or dull or lessen because we get older. We don't see as brightly. We don't see as clearly. We need more light. You know, we got to remember him before we get too old to realize that we've missed out on all these opportunities. I think Solomon is trying to challenge us and tell us that aging is a difficult process. It's sobering. If you know someone that's going through the process or or, or late in their 80s or 90s, we used to have a guy at church that was 106. It's it's tough to get out of bed and get to to the couch. It takes some work even at 30, but think about it 70 years later. It's a sobering process. And so Solomon is challenging the people, start early. It's better to start early when it's easier. You know, the, the theory of, of, of Christianity is most people accept Jesus by the time they're 14. But there's a lot of people that wander away and come back in their 30s when they have kids. It's better to start early. It will become easier. As we get older, we get crabby and grouchy and we're set in our ways and it's harder to do things. We also lament getting older and we kind of go, man, I wish I could do things differently. You ever heard these sayings? If I know then what I know now, I would do these things differently. They're lamenting saying I would change a lot of things in my life or this one. If I only would have done this or that or the other thing, my life would be so much different. You're usually talking about money or relationships, but That place is really talking about missed opportunities. In our life, we have a lot of missed opportunities. But we don't realize how age really defines us. Proverbs 16, I don't know, somewhere in uh, verse 4 says that the silver hair is the crown of glory. As you get older, that gray hair, that silver head is really the the crown of glory. And we see that no better than in the Bible. As we accomplish things in our life, great things, I'm talking the biggest things in our life, usually 
They're at the end of our life after we've gone through a bunch of trials and tribulations. How about sports and entertainment and, and, and political leaders? They usually get that crown of glory later in life. I'm no Tom Brady fan, but I've watched him his whole life. And his first Super Bowl was impressive as a young man. But there was nothing more impressive than that last one at 43. And if he wins another one, oh my gosh, it'll never be uh, ever be accomplished at that age. How about... A leader, a, a president or a prime minister or someone, man or woman, leading a country. Usually it's at the end of their life that they have this great accomplishment because they've worked hard to get to that place. But the Bible really shows this in full effect. When we look at the Old Testament, Moses, he led the Israelites out of Egypt at 80 years old. Think about that for a second. Those that are 60, 70 or 80, he led at 80 years old at 40 He's running away from the struggle. He's like, I don't want any part of this. But at 80, he's coming back to lead them into the promised land. And he never really gets there because of sin. How about Caleb? I love the story about Caleb. Caleb took the mountain for his daughter at 85 years old. He's like, I'm ready to fight at 80. And he went into the promised land and fought the battles. But at 85, he needed to take one more mountain for his family. And he did it. That's amazing to think. At 85, he was ready and willing to go into battle and really experience the crown of glory there. There's a bunch of other people we could talk about, but Michelangelo is one of those that we should probably admire because of all the wonderful works of, of art that he did with regards to our Savior. It says on his last days that he was alive, he was sculpting a sculpture. You can look it up online right now. And it's, it's Mary holding Jesus after the cross. And he was on his back carving stuff the final days of his life. He was also managing Peter's Basilica in, in the Vatican in Italy. And he was sending pictures every day because he could no longer make it. He would draw pictures and say, it's got to be like this on his final days. He was actually still working some of the greatest art, art achievements of all time. How about John Wesley? No matter what you believe about his theology, he was still preaching at a ripe old age of 85. And he, the, the stories go that he went a quarter of a million miles on horseback to preach to over 4,000 sermons. And by the end of his life, his crowds were so big and none of the churches wanted in, him into their churches. But he was teaching in, his, teaching in graveyards and cemeteries and big fields. And he was still preaching as strong as ever. At the end of his life, he had made huge achievements. The old saying is, the older the fiddle, the sweeter the sound. And I think there's no better analogy there. So we're talking about age. And I think Solomon is trying to teach us about age. But what about in the last hundred years of our life? In the turn of the century, in the, in the 20th century, about 1900 to 1904, the average age that people were dying was 48 years old. 60 years later, 1960s, it was 68. It had grown 20 years. And today, 2020 or 2018 or 19, when they did that last study, it was 81 to 83. 81 men, 83 women. It's amazing. There are 3 million people in this world that are, are, are over 100 years old. Back in the 1900s, we would never even think about getting to 100. 48 was old, let alone 100. But I think Solomon's challenging us here. Living longer is good, but is it really better? 
Maybe we need to learn to live early, right, and watch God work and move. Ecclesiastes is in the poetry wisdom section of the Bible. It's in the middle. And there's Psalms and Proverbs and Job and and, and, um, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. It's this elaborate Hebrew poetry section. Some wisdom, a lot of poetry. And this is what we consider some poetry section. And he's going to give some poetic words about old age. And he's going to use the house as an analogy. And basically the house is going to break down and turn into dust. Just like the body that we have is going to break down and turn into dust one day. The dwelling place is used several times in the Bible to be a metaphor as life. Job's, Job chapter 5 talks about the house or this dwelling place being a, 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 a representation of life. 2 Corinthians 4 talks about life being a dwelling place. And 2 Peter 1 talks about how life can be like a house. And so these next few verses, you can see the house imagery in this old age, this, this person growing older. And one of the things I love about the NLT translation, we, I read out of the New Living Translation, is in some areas, and I believe in this next section, you're going to see them spell out some of the house and, and its meanings in the same section. You'll see it as we read it. It says this, verse 3, Remember him before your legs, the guard of the house starts to tremble and before your shoulders the strong men stoop so most of the time when you read this in other translations you have to break out a list and go this is what this means the NLT spells it out the 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 legs are the guards of the house and the arms and the shoulders are the strong men and, and, and they're to protect the house remember him before your teeth the few that are remaining so that the few remaining servants stop grinding. Have you, when, when you have teeth problems, especially if it's in the front, you got to move the stuff in the back. But if you don't have grinders in the back or they're withered away and you can't grind anymore, you can't even chew food. You got to eat baby food. That's basically the struggle. Mashed potatoes and soup all day long. And here, that's what he says. How about this? Before your eyes, the women look through the windows. Your eyes are like these windows. See dimly. I love this kind of joke. It's an archaeological joke about dating or marriage. Uh, Agatha Christie said this. She said, uh, the best husband or the best person to marry is an archaeologist because they appreciate you as you get older and they appreciate that old bag of bones as you get older. It's kind of an older joke, but it's appropriate here. Verse 4 says, remember him before the doors of life's opportunities close. The sounds start to fade away. Now you rise at the first chirping of the birds, but then the sounds of the, uh, uh, of the, the, the sounds will grow faint. In your ear, you have like these three bones and they work so that they can build vibrations that we can hear. As you get older, the three bones stop working as much. And no longer are you hearing the way you used to hear. You used to wake up to the chirping birds. My wife likes to black out the the, the bedroom and close the window because the birds at 7 o'clock in the morning on Saturday are so excited and she wants to sleep in. But as we get older, we don't hear those chirping birds because the bones in our ears aren't working. Here's what verse 5 says. And you can see this elaborate imagery in poetry. Remember him, God, before 
uh, before you become fearful of falling and worrying about the dangers in the street. Uh, elder people always worry about falling. I've fallen and I can't get up. These are things that they worry about. They got watches and buttons to push because it becomes an issue about the dangers in the streets before your hair turns white like an almond tree in bloom. Have you ever seen an almond tree? There's a bunch of them down Highway 5. I used to drive in Chico and there was all these white almond trees during the right season blooming. It's beautiful, but it looks like the, the, the hair of those that have lived a beautiful life. And then it talks about, and then you drag along with, uh, without energy like a dying grasshopper. And the caperberry lo- no longer inspires sexual desire. Now, some of the analogies here have different meanings and not all theologians agree that grasshopper has a very interesting analogy I'm not going to talk about. But at the end of the grasshopper's life, they live about two lives. They're weak and, and, and no longer strong in their last days, which is short on this earth. They, they can't do the same work and the same chewing of the grass and, and, and the crops as they used to. And then it talks about sexual desire. Now, everybody ears perk when the Bible talks about sexual desire. But here's the thing. Sexual desire and sex is on the list. The beautiful thing, it's at the end of the list. The sad thing, it's on the list. It's going to go away and it's going to become less and less. So remember when you're young. Here's what it says. Remember him before you near the grave, your everlasting home, when mourners will weep at your funeral. You know, we are all going to come to a moment where unless we are raptured up, we're all going to have some sort of a memorial by one or a few or hundreds. But we're going to come to the end of our life and we are to remember him as we go through this life. I don't know about you. I think, especially in Southern California, Californians, we hate aging. And if I was sitting here and my buddy Bones, uh, he always talks about the Western culture. The Western culture doesn't like older people. We actually put them in homes and we don't uh, honor them and we don't really uh, uh, elevate them like other cultures do. We hate aging, so we frown upon it. So we diet, we do facelifts, we do liposuction, we get creams and hair lifts, and we do all these things to mask how old we really are. You see some of those people on TV that looked, you know, the same 40 years ago as they do today because they hate aging because in our society, the aged are, are, have no purpose. If you're not beautiful and and, and still wrinkle-free, you really have no use to this society. But when I was in Nepal, I was kind of blown away. Me and Kim and Cameron were hiking up uh, up in the K2 area. And, and as we were meeting on this one guy, and he was like about 40 years old, and he was working the farm. And we were talking about Jesus, and he goes like, I like what you guys are saying, and I actually like Jesus. I've heard him before by the pastor down the valley. But he goes, I would never accept Jesus because I would upset my father and my grandfather and my ancestors that had passed away. He was so worried about even those that had died that he wanted, didn't want to upset the elders. In our culture, we want to put them in a home and get them out of their house because they're annoying us. Charles Spurgeon says this, he says this, and this is really powerful words. It says, youthful sin lays a foundation for the aged sorrows and As we hate aging, we need to look at the useful sin, the youthful sin. I have a friend of mine that um, 
when he was, uh, you know, in high school, he got in a car accident and uh, he, uh, his best friend was in the car and the friend died. And you know what? That youthful sin, because they were screwing around, has been a burden on him. It's been a basically a tombstone around his neck since a young age, and it's just brought him. No matter, he knows Jesus, he's working on it, he's forgiven himself, he's let it go. It just holds him back constantly. And you know, this week, uh, it happened in Camarillo. Two teenagers and one died. And it just reminded me, I was thinking about that. And the things that we do uh, as, young, uh, as youth lay a foundation for the sorrows as we get older. Verse 6 and 7, uh, the author here is trying to explain some of Solomon's imagery. He talks about this cord of life and how it snaps and this bowl that breaks. And really what he's talking about, a rich Hebrew house that's got some of this fine stuff in their house. He's talking about rich folks. Here's what he says. Yes, remember your creator now while you are young, before the silver cord of life snaps. The golden bowl is broken. Remember in this life that things are going to wear out and they're going to break that beautiful gold bowl that you were given. It's going to break at some point. It's going to wither away. And that, that hanging thing that's, that, that, that's gathering the fruit, it's going to snap. That cord is going to, is going to break. It says, don't wait until the water jar smashes at the spring and the pulley is broken at the well. These things wear out. Water jugs break and over time it smashes and the pulley where you pull the water out, it's going to go down one day. And if you wait, you're going to end up having a tough day and have no water. You need to be prepared, I think, is what Solomon is teaching us. For when the dust will return, for then the dust will return to the earth and the spirit will return to God who gave it. At some point, this life is going to turn to dust. We're going to turn back to dust as we were made. So that house will be that imagery of that house. The instructions that we're getting from Solomon in this place where the preacher, the teacher, the author is trying to instruct us is more than just thinking about God and the creator. It's saying to pay attention to God and the creator and be intentional and obedient to God and the creator. It reminds me in Matthew, seek first the kingdom of God and the righteousness of God. And it says, and then you will be given all that you desire or need. It's like, seek first the righteousness, seek first the kingdom, be obedient, it's saying, and then God will provide what you need. And in your life, if that's your mantra or mindset, as you grow older, your life will have so much more purpose. The first seven verses, the main idea is this. If you remember the creator, God, in the days of your youth, your creator will remember you in the dark days of your life as you come to death. In those dark moments as life is becoming left and left, less and less, the vision grows dim, the house is kind of falling apart, the creator will remember you. The last few verses are the concluding thoughts as we close up this section and get rid of the, or move beyond the vanity of vanity in our community group. Are we done with Ecclesiastes? If you've read all 12 chapters, it gets pretty dreary and it's time to move on. We're ready for Easter and getting into a greater place with God. Here's what it says. Solomon regrets his life as he's grown older, wasted years. There's nothing worse. And he says in verse eight, verse eight, everything is meaningless, says the teacher, completely meaningless. The vanities of vanity. It's Lavelle. It has no purpose and meaning. It's the last time in the book it's used. Thank God Almighty, it's over. 
It's all meaningless unless you have a creator in your life. This emphasizes the meaningless of an empty, what we call horizontal life. Life in this world is horizontal. Life with no God. That's what a horizontal life is. It's a, a life of vanity, a vanity of vanities. It's meaningless. And the only purpose is to incorporate a, a, a vertical life. A vertical life with uh, God works out the horizontal life that seems meaningless and empty. As we come to Easter Sunday and as we're celebrating Palm Sunday, 1 Corinthians 15, we talked about it last week, has uh, the images of Christ resurrecting from the grave and how a one man seed falls into the ground and in that death something grows out of it and it's the same with our life. But at the very end of that chapter it says this, 1 Corinthians 15, 58, I love it and it just makes me want to shout. It says, therefore my brothers, be steadfast and immovable, Ready, steadfast, immovable, always excel in the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Vanity of vanity, if there's no God, the labor is just of, 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 of no use. But if I believe and I have faith in the Lord, the things that I do will be and have impact in my life after this. I need to realize that my labor will not be in vain. It's not a thing of vanity. And trust me, I am a vain person. I'm worried about that and there's no reason. I'm getting older. You can't fight it. But this is what God says. Do the best you can early and you will learn to do it throughout your life. And you will see your life not be held in vain or the labor you do for the Lord not be in vain. Should really encourage us. Here's what verse 9 says. Keep in mind. The teacher was considered wise and he taught his people everything he knew. He listened carefully to many proverbs. He studied and classified them. The teacher sought to find just the right words to express truths clearly. He knew a lot and he classified proverbs and wisdom and literature and he knew how to do things and it sounds like he knew how to present a message to captivate people and give clarity as he was speaking the author here is telling us Solomon gave a honest and thorough record of what he has learned and the wisdom that he has learned in this life life is a school remember that it's a gift and it's a school and we are to learn and he gives us word from the wise. You know what word from the wise is? We see that and we hear that. It's a, it's a Hebrew proverb just meaning someone who believes in God. The word from the wise is really saying someone who believes in God has given us wisdom, godly wisdom. And Solomon is giving it and he's classifying it. I want to kind of digress for a second and talk a little bit about Solomon. He wrote many parts of the, the poetry section in the Bible, some wisdom parts and some poetry. And it seems like in his writing, there's time periods. Now, there's no historical data to see when he wrote certain things. But for example, it seems like when he was 20 or younger, he wrote Song of Solomon. We always joke in our staff that when you get married, you can finally ring, read this Song of Solomon because it's about two uh, a couple experiencing themselves on their honeymoon and enjoying each other. And it's kind of lustful and it's kind of erotic in some areas, but you can hear it and it seems like he's writing it in a younger mindset. Here's what it says. Song of Solomon's one, two, it says, kiss me and kiss me again. 
for your love is sweeter than wine. Have you ever heard that before? Kiss me and kiss me again. And it's basically saying, oh, you remember when you were first in love and you were on your honeymoon and all you wanted to do was lay in bed and stare and gaze at each other, even though you're in some paradise type of place? It seems like he's writing this at a younger age and he's got this youthfulness in that writing. Now, once again, we don't know the time period, but it seems like that's what he's saying. As Solomon gets older, he has his first son in his mid-40s. His son's named Rehoboam. And at, in Proverbs chapter 5, verse 1, it seems like he's teaching now as a, as a father to a son. And here's what he says. My son, pay attention to my wisdom. Listen carefully to my wise counsel. Now, if you know chapter five, Proverbs 5 and Proverbs 6, it's about immoral women. And so he's trying to say, hey, watch out. These women are going to lead you astray. And he tells us in, in, in Proverbs 5 and 6, watch out for those lustful partners because they're going to take you right out of the will of God. You ever seen someone go to church and meet Mr. or Mrs. Wright and never go back to church again? I, I've seen it literally 40 or 50 times in my short ter- time as a pastor. And then at the end of his life, it seems like he's wrote in Ecclesiastes. It's like, it's all meaningless. I'm getting older. I'm grumpy. It doesn't make any sense. Life is just a joke. Without God, without a creator, this life under the sun is vanity of vanity. All you can do is work on this vertical relationship with God because all this other stuff, it's all meaningless. You know someone that's gotten older and how they've gotten crabbier? You know who you are. You might be watching it right now. Solomon is challenging us, get it done early and it'll be easier as you get older. Here's what it says in verse 11. The words of the wise are like cattle prods, painful but helpful. It says their collective sayings are like a nail studded stick which, with which a shepherd drives its sheep. Once again, the NLT actually describes the Hebrew, the Aramaic correctly. The actual word in your book might say goads, which is a cattle prod. And, and, and a cattle prod is actually something that you kind of poke or prod today. It's electrical where you kind of poke the cattle and it hurts just enough to move you in the right direction. This one also talks about a nail studded stick the shepherd uses to kind of tap the sheep and to get them into the right place so that they can be uh, in the proper place where they're supposed to be as they're living their life. One of the other things that you will see in this translation, it talks about a nail. You know, back in the old days in these farmhouses, you would put a couple nails in your house and you would put them right as you walk in and you would hang your keys, maybe hang your hat or you would hang your jacket. A nail placed at the right time was something that you could kind of count on and you could hang your your things upon it. And I think that's also one of the analogies that we see here. Let's continue on in verse 12. But my child, let me give you some further uh, advice. This is interesting to me. It says, be careful for writing books is endless and much study wears you out. And that is the complete opposite of what we believe into our society today, especially in the Christian church. The church is about seminary and doctrine and studying the Bible and knowing it and, you know, looking at Revelation and looking at Daniel and looking at the prof- prophetic words so that we can figure out when it's going to come back. Matthew 24 and 25 says, don't worry about when it's going to happen. Not even Jesus knows, only the Father knows. But we are so worried about studying and knowing more. And as Christians, that's not the essence of Christianity. It's not about how much doctrine or how much stuff you can recite. It's not about 
going to seminary and all those things are great. I love having the ability to remember some verses and use them as they come up. But really, it says this, it says, writing books is endless and much study wears you out and it could derail you. I've heard people go to uh, study uh, theology and it actually turns them away from God. That's not what we want. And I'm not saying not go, go to seminary, get your degree, do it. But just realize too much studying could actually do worse for you than, than better for you. Solomon is saying after all the successes and all the failures, after all the indulgence, the decadent things in life, after all the experimentation, after all the partying and all the possessions that he's gathered, the highs and the lows, the ups and the downs, the lustful passions, life is just a, a, a school. It's a bunch of lessons and a bunch of tests and, and quizzes and final exams. And we must humble ourselves so that we can truly learn the lesson. Now, I'm not really a big school guy. So when I say this, I don't actually go, oh, yay, I love pop quizzes and I love midterms and final exams and doctrinal papers. That's just not who I am. But that doesn't mean that I shouldn't uh, believe in it and realize that life is a school and we must humble ourselves and learn the lessons that God has given us. Now, how do we do that? The textbook that we have is called the Bible and our teacher is the Holy Spirit. It was left to us as Jesus ascended. He says, I'm going to leave you this spirit and it's going to be our counselor, our guider. It's going to be our everything that connects us to the Father and to Jesus' teaching. Now, God does use gifted, godly people to uh, to teach us and to grow us. He gives a bunch of gifts to us and you can see that throughout the Bible. But truthfully, he longs for you to get people out of your relationship and have you go vertically one-on-one -on -one with him. He really wants us to, to, to chew on his word and let the Holy Spirit guide us and, and build that personal relationship. Write this down and read it if you got a second this week. Psalm 119, uh, 97 to 104. Read those sections because that really talks about having this personal relationship and how it really makes you on fire with God and that it's really, that's what the essence of our relationship's about. Here's a couple of the verses I have. Psalm 119.97 says, Oh, how I love your instructions. I think about them all day long. When you're in love, you think about that person all day long. And when you're in love with the Lord and you have that personal relationship, I'm thinking about him all day long. And it continues in the very last verse says, your commands give me understanding. The more that I'm in love with you and the more that I follow you, these final verses about this personal relationship says, your commands give me understandings. And it says this, no wonder I hate every false word, uh, every false way of life. No wonder why I hate every false way of life. I love you so much. When I see something false, I shun it and I hate it because I know that's not of you. It goes from our personal relation comes from heaven to earth and then our relation kind of ministers back up from earth to heaven. That's what he wants, that one-on-one -on -one relationship. So we see today in Palm Sunday, life is a gift. Life is a school. And then it also is about stewardship. Life is about stewardship. If not, if there's no God, then it's all meaningless and we don't need to do anything. It's all vanity. It's uh, the vanity of vanities. And we should just eat, drink and be merry and not worry about the consequences. But we know that not to be true. Acts 17, I think 23 to 27 says this. 
we don't really actually own our lives. You should read that. Acts 17, 23 to 27. It says, we don't actually own our lives. It's a gift from God. It's something that's been given to us. Like, you know, that story at the beginning that we were given these bags of talents and we are to learn from this life and then we are to be caretakers or stewards of what God has given us. Corey Ten Boom, uh, one of the famous uh, women of this generation, talking about her life in, Osh, uh, in the concentration camps, she preached a lot of message. Here's what she said about life. She says, the measure of a life, after all, is not its duration, but its donation. It's not how long I live, but it's what I'm giving to this world that really measures it. And the only thing that we can really give is a life full of God's spirit and his heart, and his love for other people. And that brings me to the conclusion. As we look at it, and as we go into the final words, we'll open up our Bible, and it says, that's the whole story. And here's the final conclusion. This is the final answer. You know the story, who wants to be a millionaire, or who wants to be an eternal heir, not a millionaire. Here's his final answer. Here's the final conclusion. Fear God and obey his commands, for this is everyone's duty. This is your job. God will judge us for everything we do, including every secret thing, whether good or bad. The final three things, the takeaway of this message and really of this whole sermon series is this. Fear, obey, and prepare. Be stewards and prepare for what God has. There's this great uh, quote from uh, Oswald Chambers, and I, I just want to use this for fear of God. I, there's no, I can't write any better words than this. Here's what it says: The remarkable thing about God is when you. The remarkable thing about God is when you fear God, you fear nothing else. So good. Whereas if you don't fear God, you fear everything else. When I'm in right relationship with God, when I know where I'm going and and, and where my heart is, that's where my treasure will be. It doesn't matter what happens in this world. Lots of money, no money, relationship struggles, kids growing up and growing older, death, divorce. I I got a good, good, healthy fear of God and, and I don't fear anything else. But when I'm living in this horizontal, meaningless life, I fear everything. That's a scary place. The fear of the Lord must result then in obedience or the fear that I have is second rate. It's a sham. It's you've been schemed. It's actually fake news. It's not real. If your fear doesn't cause you to be into obedient relationship, you don't really fear and you're actually living a life without God or a life under the sun without true meaning. It's about obedience. The second part of the application is not only fear, but it says obey. This is our duty, it says. John chapter uh, 14, verse 5. I'm actually going through the Bible. I'm almost done in 90 days. And I'm in John right now. John 14, 15 says, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. If you love me, he says. Now, this is really weird because there's a lot of things that we want from God. It's, he doesn't say, if you feel me. In the worship service and there's goosebumps on my ears and on my hair and every hair standing up, then you'll, then, then, then that's really how you love me. It doesn't talk about seeing him or hearing him or understanding him. No, it says obey him. And in that obedience, it brings us to a better relationship. 
we, we, we kind of search out the, the feelings and, and the meanings and the understanding. It's either doctrine or it's the Holy Spirit rollers. And those two are driving the church right now. And it's about a feeling or it's about a, a memorization or doctrinal state. And really, he says, just obey me. Just obey me. It's not about feelings because that feeling's going to leave. It's not about understanding or our doctrine because that's going to kind of get fuzzy at some point. It's not about experience. That's going to fade. Obedience is the only thing that we can do when all else fails. You have a death. You're obedient. You have a divorce. You're obedient. You have a struggle with a child. You become obedient. You don't hear God. You're obedient. You don't feel him. You don't see him. You don't understand what's going on. You just become obedient. And if you love me, you'll obey my commands. That's powerful. And finally, it's about preparation. I'm not a prepper. I've got a couple of bottles of water and a few cans of beans and some chicken and corn. And if the day comes when we're got to use it, I'm probably not going to make it, but more than a couple of days. But that's just who I am. But I am preparing my life for that final day when I meet Jesus. And that was the beginning of the story when we talked about Matthew 25. Jesus tells this story about the kingdom of heaven is like this man who goes on a long trip and he gives these talents. And then he comes back one day and he measures everybody for what they've done and how they prepared in their life. And the first guy comes in and he says, what did you do? And he said, I invested and made five more. I now have 10 bags. And he says, well done. And then the guy with two bags says, I also worked with your gifts and I got four bags. And he says, well done. And then the one comes and this one's kind of the lazy one that didn't really prepare. And he's like making some excuses. Well, I know that you're God that does it, harvests his crops. You don't actually plan. And you, he did some things. I know you're different. So I was so worried about it. I just buried your gift and I dug it up a couple of minutes ago. Here it is. And, 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 and Jesus looks at it and says, what kind of wicked servant? At least put it in the bank and earn interest. Then he said, take that bag away from the guy that did nothing with it and give it to the guy that's got 10 bags. He ordered him to take the money from the servant and give it to the one in 10 bags. And here's the really the essence of the message. Matthew 29, uh, 25, 29. To those who will uh, use well what you are given, even more will be given. And then you will have an abundance. But for those who do nothing, even what little they have will be taken away. When you're given a little and you do well with it, more will be given. If you do nothing with what you have and you've done nothing and you come to the end of the line and think you're going to get everything, it says it's going to be taken away. And the very next parable says there's sheeps on the judgment day and there's goats. What side of the street are you going to be on? As we celebrate Palm Sunday and as we get ready to worship and celebrate God and move into Easter Sunday, here's what we see in the, this sermon series, Vanity of Vanity. It's Ecclesiastes is telling us we need a savior. If not, life is meaningless. We need a day of judgment so that all the wicked that are doing things that are prospering and still stepping on people and doing wicked things, the day of judgment will write all of that. And finally, that there's got to be more than this meaningless life. And there is. It's called eternal life. And that's why Jesus came. That's why he was celebrated on Palm Sunday. He wasn't just going to be a human king. He's an eternal king for all of us. 
There's a leadership book in the Bible. It's second, it's first Timothy chapter six. And I just want to close with this verse and then pray and get ready for this Easter week. Here's what it says. First Timothy six, 17. I really believe this is all of this, this book in, encapsulated in this leadership lesson. It says, teach those who are rich. And Jeremy said a couple weeks ago, all of us are rich. In this country, we are the richest and the wealthiest. Teach those who are rich in this world not to be proud and trust in their money. We're all rich, which is unreliable. Their trust should be in God who richly gives all of what we need for our enjoyment. Fear God, obey his commands and be prepared and watch the love and will of God work powerfully in your life. Let's just pray and get ready for Passion Week. Lord, we are so grateful for these crazy, beautiful, elaborate Hebrew poetry words. We ask, Holy Spirit, as we listen today, that you are refining us, that you are shaping us, that you are helping us fear you greater and put us in a better place of obedience. Holy Spirit, help me and all of us that are watching become more obedient. And Lord, where we need more preparation, show us right now in your name. If there's someone that doesn't know Jesus, now is the opportunity to accept him. All you have to do is confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and you will be a child of God and you will have this eternal life, this, 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 this savior that will save you and you will be uh, redeemed on judgment day. If that's you, just repeat after me, father, forgive me, come into my heart, come into my soul. And be my Lord and Savior. You died upon the cross on that Good Friday. And on that Easter Sunday you rose. So that all who believe will have eternal life. Holy Spirit take my life right now. Mold me. Conform me. And make me a child of God. And teach me to walk and be obedient all the days of my life. Fearing God and preparing for that day that we meet in heaven. In Jesus' name. Amen.